On October 16th, former Fox News anchor Gretchen Carlson kicked off her national book tour for Be Fierce, Stop Harassment, and Take Your Power Back by joining Washington Post columnist Kathleen Parker for an onstage interview. Their conversation came amid mounting stories of sexual harassment in the media and entertainment industries and covered a range of topics, including the recent allegations against Harvey Weinstein and a culture in which, quote, companies cover up for harassers. Also, how forced arbitration perpetrates the silencing of employees' sexual harassment claims. Why Anita Hill's 1991 testimony against then-U.S. Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas is still relevant today. The role men can play in confronting harassment of women, both in the workplace and elsewhere, and much, much more. Let's listen. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm morning. Kathleen Parker. I'm a columnist for The Washington Post. I, I think Gretchen Carlson needs no introduction. Um, she's the former Fox TV uh, anchor who successfully sued uh, Roger Ailes for sexual harassment. She's also a former Miss America. She's a, a world-class violinist. She was an honor student at Stanford University. And if she weren't such a nice person, I would hate her um, right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Kathleen. But Gretchen's, um, you know, she has, um, I think I heard Tina Brown the other day acknowledge that you were, or recognize you as, as the person who has kind of started this movement, a groundswell of support, as well as um, a lot of people coming out and speaking up about the um, experiences they've had in the workplace, um, mostly women, but also men. So I wanted to, uh, just this last 24 hours, the uh, hashtag um, MeToo has taken off uh, on uh, Facebook and women or, or Twitter. Would that be Twitter? Both. Both. But yeah, primarily Twitter, but also yeah. on Facebook. But um, Gretchen, speak to um, what you sense going on right now in, in this country and in the culture in terms of how we are, how are we at a tipping point? So I'm incredibly optimistic with where we are 15 months after I jumped off the cliff and into the abyss not knowing what would lay below it all. And as horrific as the revelations are coming out of Hollywood, I'm optimistic that this is the tipping point, that this is the watershed moment that we've been waiting for. <laughs> Women have been waiting for this for a long time. But it's also proof that the work that I've been doing over the last 15 months to draw attention to this issue, and specifically here on Capitol Hill to try and change laws to take the silence out of sexual harassment, that we're here. We're here. And one of the most important factors is that men are on board now, too. And we need you. We I, need you so much to help us with this mission. I should have mentioned um, in, in my introductory remarks that we're really here to launch <laughs> Gretchen's new book, just <laughs> FYI, called Be Fierce. Thank you. Um, hashtag Be Fierce as well. And uh, even though we are, um, she and I are going to do most of the talking, we will uh, take some Twitter questions throughout. And if you, you can tweet uh, to hashtag Be Fierce, um, and we'll take a few questions that way um, periodically throughout our conversation. Gretchen, I think most women. Um, are, are curious to know how you found the guts to come out. Here you are at Fox News. You're an extremely successful anchor woman. You had everything to lose, mm -hmm. and yet you were willing to take on the really one of the, the biggest men in broadcast media. Mm -hmm. And uh, how, did, how did you do that? I mean, finding the courage to speak up is very difficult for most women, and yet you did. What, what was it that prompted you to go forward and do it? 
So courage, I think, is a building process. It's not something that you just turn a light switch on and say, I think I'm going to do that tomorrow. First and foremost, I think it's the way in which we're raised. I was lucky enough to have parents who told me I could be anything I wanted to be on a daily basis. And I think that really gave me the courage to take on every challenge in life and every goal you know, with an incredible amount of tenacity. Um, so I fall back on how I was raised, really. But that's or, you. Yes. Because you and, were you. Well, but I want to, but just let me finish about how, fast forward all those years later where I'm making this monumental decision, probably the most pro important professional decision of my life, that um, when I realized that a career that I had built over 27 years was coming to an end and not because of my choice, I decided that if I wasn't going to be the one to stand up and do it and take on this issue, who was? And I was thinking primarily about our next generation of young girls and young boys. I have a 12-year-old son and a 14-year-old daughter. And I didn't want them or anyone else in that generation to face the same indignities that I was facing. And that was really the decision to jump. So tell us about um, how, all, all the support you got from over at Fox from your colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can't talk about that, uh, but I can say that you find out who your friends are when you go through an experience like this. So one of the big problems for, for women who do come forward is, number one, they're not believed, and you, you address that in your book, um, or at least they fear they will not be believed. Most of the time, they're not believed. Most of the time, they're not believed. Okay, and part of that is what? It's because uh, sexual harassment is well, so subjective? No, be, well, it can be subjective, but also because in 2017, we still shroud this in secrecy. We're really fooling ourselves in a culture to believe that we've come so far on this issue. And one of the reasons that we think that we have is because we don't really hear about these cases, or at least before mine, we didn't. But the reason we're not hearing about them is because sexual harassment is resolved usually in one of two ways either settlements that shut up women. They can never, ever talk about what happened to them. And in many cases, the perpetrators still work in the same place. Or number two, you're forced into arbitration instead of an open jury process. And these clauses are becoming prevalent in employee contracts all across America. And what does that mean? Arbitration is also secret. So hypothetically, let's say you're facing sexual har harassment in the workplace. You file a claim. You're put into secret arbitration. Only 20% of the time does the employee actually win in those situations. You don't get the same amount of witnesses, not the same kind of depositions, and there are no appeals. And nobody ever finds out that you did this. No one. And the perpetrator can still stay working and harassing. So this is how we're fooling our culture into thinking, wow, we don't hear about sexual harassment cases anymore. But those are the two big reasons why you're not hearing about them. And that's why I am so proud that women are saying, enough already. We are going to come out, and we are going to talk about this, and we're going to put our faces and our names to this issue once and for all. Hashtag enough already. Enough already. A lot of There's a lot of hashtags out there. So um, OK, so you, um, I want to quickly ask you to, to uh, focus a minute. One of the interesting things in the book, I thought, was uh, when you say that a lot of people in the workplace would think, well, I'll go to HR, human resources, and, and tell them what's happened to me. And they'll, of course, come to my assistance. But that's not necessarily so. Mm -hmm. And you talk about that in your book. What is the, tell, tell us a little bit more about that. 
Yeah, so I think you have to remember, well, first of all, I want to say that there are tons of good people in human resources departments, and I've heard from a lot of them, and they really yes, do. Yes, this is nothing against HR. Yeah, it's not. Way. I mean, they, just... they, they really do want to help, and I want to make sure that I say that because I've heard we from love HR. so many of them. However, I think you, you need to uh, realize and understand that people in those departments, where are they getting their paychecks from? Um, you know, you have to understand that if, if the harasser happens to be somebody who's in charge of paying these people, who are they going to side with? So I advocate in Be Fierce that we should try out a new system so that women feel more compelled to come forward and so that the enabling stops by other people within the corporation as well, that they also feel empowered to come forward. So here are a couple ideas. I think that companies should have an ombudsman of sorts who's an independent contractor where the people would feel completely comfortable going to them, he or she, because they know that they're not technically working inside of the company. Mm -hmm. And also, I think we need to change it the way in which we do sexual harassment training. So much focus is on what is harassment, and that, that's fine. But I think we also need to amp it up to talk about bystanders becoming allies. Because so much of the reason that sexual harassment is pervasive is that other people who see it within the workplace are scared also to come forward because they don't want to lose their jobs. And I chronicle in the book men who were brave enough to come forward on behalf of women. And you know what happened to them? They were fired. So we really need to increase the training about how do we, how do we let bystanders feel comfortable enough to come forward. And imagine if the leader of a company would get his whole, he or she, get the whole group together, but predominantly it's still men running Fortune 500 companies, get them all together and say, from the top down, we're not accepting this in our company. And in fact, we're going to celebrate people who come forward. We're going to celebrate the bystander who sees it and comes forward. Imagine how that would change the dynamic of where we are right now, where it's like, hush, hush, she's a problem, she can't take a joke, and the enabler also fears coming forward. I think that that changes the entire dynamic. Well, okay, well you make a good point there, but also when you talk about, oh, the joke, for example, um, people like me have a high tolerance for, for jokes that may be offensive to some others, and that's because I was raised by a man, I was raised in the man's world, and um, I've always worked in a newsroom, and it's a pretty, you know, traditionally a pretty body place. Mm -hmm. So you learn to just kind of roll with the punches and not take things too terribly seriously. And a lot of people would say, particularly men, that somehow this sexual harassment uh, issue has become a little too sensitive in terms that nobody can feel like they can just relax and, and occasionally make a remark that may not be perfection, you know, in women's... Uh, well, I think terms. I've worked in a newsroom for 27 years. Uh, the F-bomb is every other word. <laughs> so that's um, not sexual uh, arrest. Sorry, Mom and Dad. I, <laughs> uh, on a tendency, have also used it myself. Um, my first chapter in the book is, Are You Done Taking SH? You Know What? Uh, so <laughs> that is different from being sexually harassed. Okay. Um, it was, you know, it's pretty obvious in, in most cases, uh, the thousands of women who reached out to me after my story broke... Uh, their stories, it was pretty obvious that they were being sexually harassed. And here's the undersold part of the whole entire story. People want to hear all the salacious details of what they said to you and whether or not they showed you porn or they, you know, drew pictures of their genitalia in front of you or whatever the case may be. But the real story is the retaliation that happens after you rebuff the advances. And that's the undersold part of the story. What happens to women after they do come forward? They're demoted. 
They're left out of prime assignments. Eventually, many are fired. And of all the women that I've spoken to, thousands, and responded to all of them to stay strong, most of them are never again going to work in their chosen career path. That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. So as much as I can take a joke too, that's not what this is about. But you do say that sexual harassment doesn't necessarily have to be sexual. What do you mean by that? I mean that it can be any kind of you know, commentary. It's, it doesn't have to be literally asking you for, for sex. It's, it's about demeaning. It's about calling you uh, certain names that you can't you know, hang out with the boys. That, um, and, and also, uh, sexual harassment's really about power. You know, not always is it about actually having sex. It's about a paradigm of power that's completely out of whack when you are the female employee who has no power in the situation, and the man who is potentially your boss has all the power. That's really what it's about. So when you and I were speaking uh, earlier, I. One of the things Gretchen has pointed out in the book and that was really surprising to me is that there are so many incidents of sexual harassment. And, and it is a power play often, but it's also, um, you know, it's made to women feel demeaned in, in certain circumstances. And I, I always, I said to Gretchen, well, I've never been sexually harassed. I don't even actually have this experience. And then as we talked, I had clearly had, and I clearly, and then I even remembered one instance that I completely blocked out that was very specific and directed toward me, very sexual, uh, aggressively sexual, and I did, in fact, get this person uh, fired, um, sort of surprisingly, about, this is about 15, 16 years ago. Anyway, um, I, one of the stories I told her, and she asked me to tell you this, so that's why I'm going to take the microphone for a minute. Um, in one place, I, I was between newspaper jobs and I had taken a writing position with a public relations firm. I was a science writer. There were actually two of us. Uh, one was a, a man, a Muslim man, and, and I was the other. So one of the fun things that they did in this little boutique firm was they, would, they liked to bring in strippers for the executive's birthday parties at the office. It might be nine o'clock in the morning, we're having our first cup of coffee, and in comes this poor woman um, with her little, um, you know, tape recorder. <laughs> this is before we all had iPhones and, and Pandora and all that. And she's, the guy sits in a chair and she's, she starts dancing and uh, it was just horrible. It was embarrassing uh, on one level, but it was also, I felt so sorry for this woman because this was clearly not, you know, the best part of her day. Um, but anyway, I left and they didn't mind that I left I came back the next day. They, after that, every time there was a birthday, they would do the same thing. The receptionist uh, was in charge of setting these things up. She thought it was just a, a hoot. And um, so it, in the future, they just said, look, uh, you don't have to come to work. We're going to have another stripper. And I said, fine, I won't come to work. And the other, the fellow, um, I won't say his name because it'd be um, easily recognized, I'm afraid, but he um, also would not attend these things because it was against his religion and his values. So one day after we've missed the stripper, uh, the boss calls us into the conference room for a staff meeting and he puts up on the video, uh, you know, on the 
you know, projector, he, uh, a, a video of the strip, stripping episode. And I just, you know, I thought, okay, so I missed, I didn't come to work because I didn't want to see this because it was humiliating. And now they're going to make me sit here and watch. So I got up and left again, and my male um, colleague also got up and left. So anyway, that was a clear case of sexual harassment, even though I didn't really at the time recognize it for what it was. But the way it worked was that, you know, I had no... They gave me the option of leaving, but this was still an environment in which I had to work, knowing that, you know, demeaning women and putting them in this sort of horrible, subservient situation was part of the, the culture. Um, I wish I had walked out. I needed the money, um, and um, I just and I needed the job, and so I didn't say a thing. So a couple points here. I mean, first of all, I'm so sorry that you had to experience that. Does anyone think that's subjective? <laughs> I mean, pretty clear-cut sexual harassment, um, atrocious, outrageous, even if it was 15 years ago. But the second thing is, this is what happens to women and men when they go through this. Kathleen wasn't even acknowledging in her own heart and mind that this is sexual harassment, that this is what's happened to her. Because what we've done is we've normalized this in our culture. And imagine if one person there, besides the two of you, who luckily got The woman and the Muslim, you know. Yeah, but, but, but imagine <laughs> if somebody else there had said, this is absolutely outrageous they would have stopped it cold. And that's my whole point about bystanders taking action. But I bet you've had other experiences in your life, in fact, I know you have, where you were also sexually harassed, but you've compartmentalized it. Yeah, a hands-on situation. Yeah. I just thought, whatever, you know, you're an idiot. Um, but, you know, I should have said something stronger than that and stood up for myself. But, but I you're talking about it now, and, and now the, the world and the nation is talking about it. And you say every woman has a story. Every woman has a story. I think that was the, one of the most surprising revelations for me after my story broke was that I started getting all these emails from thousands of women across the country. And I started printing them off in my home office, and they started becoming stacks of paper. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I need to do something with this. But the most startling fact was that it came from every profession. It wasn't just Wall Street bankers or journalists or newspaper writers. It was waitresses. It was accountants. It was teachers. It was flight attendants, a lot of those. It was women in female-dominated industries like retail, uh, like magazine publishing. It was everywhere. And I decided, because of the way my parents raised me, and they always encouraged me to write handwritten thank you notes to people, that I needed to respond to these women. And so I started responding to all of them. And the predominant thing that they wrote back to me was, thank you for being the voice for the voiceless. I've never told anybody my story. In many cases, they had never told their husbands. And thank you. Thank you for speaking out about this, because through your story, we feel victorious, even though our stories didn't end up well at all. And that's when I knew that I had a duty in front of me to dedicate this book to those women whose stories were never told, women who are never working again in their professions. Their American dream was stripped away from them. And I knew I had to tell their stories and move the needle forward about how we can improve the situation for our next generation. 
Well, and you've made the point that in order to improve the situation, men need to be very much involved. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if um, this might be easier going forward and just because it's somewhat generational, it seems to me that, you know, the, the sort of the cultural touchstones that um, Roger Ailes had, that our president has, that we can get to him in a minute, um, Bill Cosby and others. It's a certain generation. It's part of that Playboy and the 60s where everything goes. Yeah, but I'd argue that it's in our young people's, look at the tech world. Yeah. Um, I'd argue that it's, it's still there. Uh, it, it, it's... I think it's a little bit of an excuse, like the Harvey Weinstein's of the world, to say, "Well, you know, that's I, I was still entrenched in the '60s and '70s." That's just a big, huge, you know what excuse. Uh, I mean, I know my grandfathers did not treat my grandmothers that way, and that was in the '20s and '30s. And I know my father didn't treat my mother that way, so I don't buy that as an excuse. And well, no, not exists. as an excuse. Just a, I think there's a greater awareness now. And, and True. But at the same time, you make a really good point about your grandfather and your father. Um, when I was in college, in, I was at Florida State in the 70s. Yes, I'm that old. And um, we had some problems on campus with non-students coming onto the campus, and, and I think maybe there had been a rape or something. And so the fraternities actually were the good guys on campus. Huh. And they offered, they set up an escort service. If, if a girl had to walk from the library to the parking lot, which is which is a long way away, you could call up the, one of these hotlines for the fraternities and they would send someone to walk you to your car to make sure you were safe. So that culture was a different sort of culture than what we now think of and right. when the fraternities often are the places where some of these awful incidents take place. Um, mm -hmm. But you've, you've cited some heroes in, in your book, and before I let uh, her answer this uh, or talk about this, I would like to let Jesse know that I am, I've lost the Twitter feed, and so maybe you'd like to come out and set this up again for me. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but you were talking about the men who are stepping forward and doing very important work. Mm -hmm. um, and tell us about a couple of those. Yeah, so, so in researching the book, I started talking to uh, a lot of men who reached out to me. Uh, there, were, there were men who and it didn't matter what political side of the fence they were on, they, they reached out and said, this is wrong, what happened to you, and, and we support you. And I ended up writing an entire chapter in the book about men, men who defend. It ended up being the longest chapter in the book because there are so many men out there already doing great work to not only publicly defend women on these issues, but it's their job. They actually go into corporations and and teach employees how to better respect women in the workplace and show that when you do that, the bottom line actually increases. And so men, to me, I actually believe sexual harassment is a men's issue more than a women's issue. The, the, the burden of sexual harassment should not, fixing it should not be only on the shoulders of women. It's actually how we decide to raise our boys. How do we decide to raise them from a young age to respect their moms and their sisters so that when they get into the workplace, they respect their female colleagues in the same way in which they were raised. I think that's crucial, and it's why the chapter that follows Men Who Defend is how we parent. Our kids are watching us. They're hearing everything. Yeah. And whether you're married or you're a single parent or you have a partner, whatever the case may be, those relationships, that's what our kids are seeing. And if they're not seeing respect towards women, then that's what they're learning. So. For me, it really starts at home. And just in being introspective myself uh, in the past 15 months, I've changed the way, in some small instances, the way I'm 
raising my kids at home and what I'm saying. And, you know, a cute little thing with my 14-year-old daughter where I, in the morning I said, hey, guys, you know, we got to get ready to go to school. And she goes, Mom, I'm not a guy. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, okay, I never even thought about that. It's a Midwestern term to, to call everyone guys. And I do that too. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but, but when you think about it, and it's, it's really not that big of a deal, but it was interesting that she picked up on that. You know, mm -hmm. So everything you say, our kids are listening to. I think that's so important. Um, I, you know, my, my sons, I had three sons, and they all witnessed their father, who's a, a very, you know, kind of classic Southern gentleman. Um, and they know how he treats his mother. They know how he treats me. And I'm, I hope that that is translated into their personal relationships with women. But all you have to do to get men on board is, is remind them that um, their daughters will be the people in those workplaces at some point, and they have to stand up for them. Now, it sounds like we're picking on men. We're and not. We're not picking on men. Because, in fact, women are also sometimes... Um, their own worst enemy, because you, you talk about that too, where women sometimes will just, will not uh, step forward and, and help her female colleagues, mm -hmm. uh, their female colleagues, um, because they are sort of proud of the fact that they are guy girls. I've always been a proud guy girl, meaning I can get along with guys and I can roll with the punches and I'm not a big, you know, I'm not highly sensitive. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> probably should have been a little bit more <laughs> because I'm actually part of the problem mm -hmm. by kind of rolling along with things that are inappropriate. Mm -hmm. So women get trapped in this, you know, conundrum uh, because, you know, fewer women make it to higher levels within companies. Once they get there, they're very protective of the turf, I think. And so that can be Part of the issue, women are like, well, okay, I need to kind of side with the, with the guys because I, I got to this level. And so sometimes that means that I'm not always going to protect the women who are, who are below me. Mm -hmm. You get into this conundrum of sorts. Um, you know, so how do you fix that? I mean, the obvious answer is you put more women in higher positions. <laughs> yeah. so that you don't feel like you have to be so protective of, of your area. Um, but again, it gets back to the enabler point, too, that... One of my favorite quotes is, one woman can make a difference, but together we can rock the world. And if we would all decide collectively that we're not going to take this crap anymore, men and women, it would just make a huge difference. Look at what's happened with after the Harvey Weinstein story. You know, so many women put their names and faces out there. And, it started, and then it started this avalanche where every day more people came forward and men came out and supported those actions too. It's crucial. But you can see how some people would see that as, oh, for heaven's sake, you know, you got where you got because you were willing to put up with that. And now it's easy to say, oh, well, this happened way back when. You know, why didn't you do something at the time? Why didn't you just say, I'm sorry, you're, uh, we're done here, and yeah. walk out the door? Well, that's the number one question that I get. And that is one of the biggest myths out there. So. You've killed yourself to get to your career, and this is happening to you. And you're going to come forward knowing that you're going to be labeled a troublemaker and a B-I-T-C-H, and that you just can't take a joke, and you're going to, you might get fired. You're going to come forward in that environment. I mean, that is, talk about not being in somebody else's shoes, but thinking you've got the whole problem solved by just easily saying, well, why didn't you come forward before? As I said earlier, courage is a building process. It is not something where you just switch on the light and say, wow, I'm going to 
I'm going to do this. And strong women, I think, believe they can fix the problem on their own. Because in general, women have to work a little bit harder to get to where they are. So we're used to beating our heads against a brick wall. And I think that we believe that if we work just a little bit harder and show them who we really are, they'll finally recognize us for our brains and our talents, and they'll stop treating us in a demeaning way. So sometimes I think being strong can almost be not a great attribute when you find yourself in one of these situations. Well, one of the first questions that came to me, excuse me for dropping this, but it's very slippery, um, was you're, uh, you're in a certain socioeconomic class. The women in Hollywood are certainly in a certain economic class. They're, they're privileged from birth by virtue of their, they're blessed with looks, they're blessed with talent, and now they're, you know, they've, they've had big lives. How do you relate this? How does, how's, how does the single mom with two children and two jobs, how does she relate to what you're, what you're talking about? What, how, what's in it for her? I mean, she can't, she has no place to turn. Mm-hmm. What, and that was the question, Kathleen, that gnawed at me for a lot of restless nights after my story broke, was how do I help that single mom who can't afford literally to come forward? And I started the Gift of Courage Fund as a result of that, where I'm financially supporting organizations that empower women, girls, and boys. And an outreach of that that was just announced last week is that I'm starting and funding the Gretchen Carlson Leadership Initiative, which is a nine-city tour kicking off next month in Dallas-Fort Worth, three days of workshops in each city for underserved women for free. They can come and go to workshops on domestic violence, sexual harassment, and how to become more civically and politically involved in their community. Because what tends to happen to any woman who's a victim of domestic violence or sexual harassment is that they believe they don't have a voice regarding anything in life because they've been silenced and shut down in being a victim. And also, I want to provide them with information about how to be able to go to a lawyer. Well, I was going to say, what they need are lawyers exactly. right, and seminars. So right. I believe that in starting this initiative, that it's the beginning stages of being able to answer that question and provide a solution for women who do not have the means or the notoriety mm-hmm. to have their cases heard in public. We're going to um, take a Twitter question now, just so that I can say I did that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is from W. Carter. He asks... Well, this person asks, um, how do we get media to treat this issue differently and doesn't media need to make changes in its own approach to sexual harassment? Uh, you're a media person. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I do, I do believe that there was a lot of media attention uh, yeah. on, on my story. And, of course, there's been a, a, a huge amount of attention on the Harvey Weinstein story uh, as of late. But... But yes, I mean, the more the merrier, right? I mean, the more that we can get this issue out there and, and start a national dialogue, which I believe has already started. It sounds like. Yeah. I mean, I believe that uh, as we... But just, what about timing? I mean, really, this, I know this is not something to celebrate, but having this Weinstein... I can't say his name. Weinstein. Weinstein. I keep coming up with other variations on that. <clears throat> <laughs> 
this Weinstein story popping out just as your book is hitting, it hits bookshelves, uh, bookstores tomorrow. So it couldn't be better timing in terms of uh, just getting the conversation, building momentum to this conversation and having you already in place to, to address it directly. Mm -hmm. But on, in Weinstein's case, um, again, this was a situation where um, many people knew about this mm -hmm. and they didn't say anything. And would it not be possible to assume that the women who went to him and felt well, of course, his sexual harassment was so overt and so disgusting. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think everybody here is familiar with what he was, uh, as alleged to have done. We are news people, so alleged stays in place until uh, we have something uh, legal that we can say. Um, but anyway, well, the, uh, the allegations against him um, are so profoundly revolting. And, and so with all of this sort of in circulation, People kind of knew about it. Wouldn't these young women kind of have a sense that they were stepping into the lion's den and be prepared one way or another to respond? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to speak for any of them to, to know that they knew uh, what was going on. I mean, if you're a young actress, again, we're, we're putting it on the woman to have to try to figure out the dynamic. Any woman going to have a meeting with Harvey Weinstein should not be subjected to any kind of repulsive behavior. That's the bottom line. So, but when he says, but this is just the way it is. Well, <laughs> it's not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, I, I, as far as why people kept that issue secret for that long, uh, I cannot speak for his enablers. It's but let me tell you this. Companies cover up for harassers. That's the way it works right now. And that is what we have to change. Mm -hmm. there, there's no way that these types of allegations could be going on there or elsewhere for that long without other people knowing about it. Well, we go back to Anita Hill. This was a case when everybody was tuned in and watching. Um, and the things that were, you know, that uh, she was re relaying, she had a very difficult time. She was pretty much... Um, abused by the Judiciary Committee, mm -hmm. very, uh, you know, all men just uh, hostile toward her and humiliated her, basically. Um, what, how, how does someone, you know, how does, how has she changed the culture? Mm -hmm. How has she, I don't know, I'm sure you've interviewed her for your book, but how did she get through her days because that was so public. I mean, everybody was watching it in real time. Mm -hmm. And I can, no woman wants to put herself through something like that. No, I mean, my goodness. And that was on a much grander scale, obviously, but at least it was public. I don't think uh, that anyone believes that they are going to suddenly become the face of sexual harassment. I know I did not. And there are some mornings that I wake up and feel like I don't really want to be the face of it. Um, but because of the way in which I was raised and because I wear a bracelet that tells me to be fierce every single day, <laughs> and my life motto is carpe diem, I do seize every day and try to make a difference on this issue. With regard to Anita Hill, I mean, ironically, I talk about it in the book that my first job in television was in Virginia, and one of the first stories I covered was the Anita Hill hearings. And I remember watching it at my desk and believing her and being shocked at the way that she was treated. So why did you believe her? Well, I believed her because, see, I grew up never experiencing any kind of gender discrimination. I was a really serious violinist. And in competitions, they didn't give a rip if you were a boy or a girl. And so 
also, you know, I excelled at school. They didn't, I never felt any discrimination at, at school or gender bias. And so it's not because I was naive, but when I got to my first job, I was like, wow, women are not paid the same and they're not treated equally. And it was like my eyes were, it was, it was unbelievable to me at 22 years old that that, that was happening because I had not experienced it. So I'm covering the Anita Hill hearings, and so of course I automatically believed her. Why wouldn't I? Yeah. And, and her treatment was so disgusting. But here's the personal footnote to this story. It was right after I was covering that that I was sexually harassed on the job. So I was with my cameraman in a rural part of Virginia, and we were covering a story. And when we got back into the car together, he started asking me about how I had liked it when he touched my breasts when he was putting my microphone on. Hmm. <laughs> and it went downhill from there. And I remember this well, is before Well, there's a lot phones. of that touching when you're having to get mic'd in the green room, but you're not supposed to say you enjoyed it. Well, <laughs> and, it, and it went on from, from, from there. But the, the point of it is that there were no cell phones at this time. Yeah. And the sheer panic that women go through when you face something like that, I literally thought to myself about rolling outside of the passenger car door at 40 miles an hour like I'd seen people do in movies and wondering how much it would hurt mm-hmm. if I would escape that way. And I got back to the newsroom and I was just a shaking mess. And luckily my boss, a man, kept approaching me and saying, what is wrong with you? What happened? And I didn't want to tell him either. Why? And I, because I was new on the job. It was the whole shame thing that women go through. What did I do to bring this on? I mean, it, this is what women feel. This is how we've been socialized to feel about this. And if it wasn't for the tenacity of him, I don't know what would have happened. But I finally had the guts to tell him. How do we help young men understand how important this is and how serious it is? I think... Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've seen a number of male eyeballs rolling in my house when they've had to subject themselves, they would put it, to sexual harassment training. Um, they're not sexual harassers um, because they're just, they were raised to be gentlemen. But um, that may be the exception these days. And how do you tell young men um, and who have grown up in a culture of, you know, porn online and, you know, the sort of, Everybody just do whatever they want to do and get away with it. And by the way, males and females, by my observation is that young men and women tend to segregate themselves. And, you know, the girls go out as a group, the guys go out as a group. I don't see a lot of this dating, like the traditional dating that we grew up doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just don't know where they're, you know, how do you explain to a young man today, other than the parents setting a good example? Culturally, what do we have to do in order to um, show young men the proper way Mm -hmm. to be in the workplace? Because we're talking about really the workplace. Let's not let's not say that you know this doesn't bleed out into personal relationships necessarily. Well, it can. It can, but I'm saying let's start with workplace. There's an appropriate way to behave, both for men and for women. Mm -hmm. An appropriate way to dress. Although I'm not not going to say that women because they dress provocatively, invite sexual harassment. I would never say that because I know that I would get my little <laughs> tush beaten when I walk. <laughs> but, um, but indeed, there are, there, are, there are responsibilities on both sides. But nonetheless, 
What do, what's your advice? Uh, um, what do we have to do culturally? So a couple of things. I interviewed a woman from the RAP project in the book who talks a lot about how we're raising our sons and girls with things like porn um, and with one in five women being assaulted on college campuses and what messages we're sending to our young people. And she advocates that we have a discussion about porn with our kids early on. And I have to say that I took her advice as I was writing this book, and I sat both of my kids down independently. It was uncomfortable. And especially with my son, who was only maybe 11 or 12 at the time, and I asked him if he knew what it was. And kind of he, he did, but I w wanted to make sure that I told him that, that um, mommy wants to make sure that if he ever has an interest in, in looking at that, that we need to have more of a conversation about it, and that that is not the way in which men treat women, because those are not real love relationships. And then I sat down my 13 or 14-year-old daughter and had the same conversation. It was tough, but I advocate in the book that all parents should do that. Because when kids are watching porn at record levels, I think it's 70 to 80% of all teenage boys, they are learning how to treat women by watching those depictions. Those are not real relationships. And then if we move on to the college campus, where women are being victimized as well. Mm. What are our boys learning there about how to treat women when they get into the workplace? It's why I plan to do a college campus tour with Be Fierce, I'm going to six colleges already, to get to young people to give my message to them. Because this message is not just for young girls. This message about being fierce is for our young boys, too. Well, I think we, we are avoiding looking at the elephant in the room, which is the President of the United States, <laughs> who has been um, accused by several women of, of groping More and other fronts. And he's asked, he's trying to make this go away until after he's no longer President. <clears throat> so um, I guess it would be uh, problematic to address that uh, in, in great length, since we have three minutes and 26 seconds. Oh, I can get to it. <laughs> but I, I would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, uh, so uh, a couple of things. When the Access Hollywood tape came out uh, before uh, last summer, and it was shortly after my story had broke, um, I think that that was a teachable moment for millions of parents across the country. And that's what I did. I showed that videotape to my kids. And I said, this is not how you treat a human being. And I don't care what political policies you agree with, taxes, immigration, who cares? Sexual harassment is apolitical. When somebody harasses you, they don't ask you what political party you're in before they do it. And this is why we should all care. And this is why human decency supersedes any political policy. I talked to Natasha Stoinoff, who is one of Trump's alleged victims, in this book at length. She was the People magazine reporter. And she shares her entire story in Be Fierce. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to point out that a lot of those women who came forward and had the bravery to come forward, what happened soon after? We didn't hear from them anymore. We went back to silencing them. Well, except for that march, which I think came about as a result of that particular tape, 
and other uh, accusations. Um, the women gathered by the tens of thousands here in Washington and marched to wearing their little pink hats. Um, lots of men also marched in there. And uh, so I think, do you think that the whole country is somewhat complicit as long as the person at the top, who is more, who is essentially the father figure of the country, is uh, allowed to... Or the mother figure, eventually. <laughs> I b firmly believe we will well, have a female uh, president. Until now, yes, the father figure. And the, well, maybe the mother figure can straighten this all out. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I do want to tell you, thank you. First of all, thank you so much uh, for sharing your experiences and your insights. Thank you, um, The book is really very good. Um, I read this last night. I stayed up and turned <laughs> every page. And it's, it's very readable. It's interesting. You'll learn a lot. Um, I'm not here to endorse it, but I, but I do endorse it. And uh, I, I love that the proceeds from, this, from book sales will go into the uh, Gretchen... The Gift uh, of Courage Fund. Into the Gift of Courage Fund, correct, not Gretchen. But and anyway, again, to help other women who need lawyers and, and advocates and mm -hmm. just help being, being fierce. And thank you so much for having me. I will just end by saying that the time is now. I mean, you talk about the Women's March. Um, you know, some women felt defeated in a sense, but I look at everything optimistically. And I say that the time is now, and look what's happening. It's working. It's working right now. And if I had anything to do with that, then I am immensely proud. So thank you for being part of the Be Fierce movement. I hope that you will join me in it and speak up and stand up, men and women alike. So thank you so much for having me here. Thank you all. We appreciate your presence and your attention. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.